Everyday Use by Alice Walker was published in 1973 and depicts the seemingly simple life of a black woman and her daughter, Maggie, preparing for a visit from her older daughter, Dee. As Dee comes to visit, Maggie is visibly nervous, and the mother is apprehensive of the changes from Dee. In this episode, we will discuss the history of the black power movement, the symbols of the common household objects, and the changes from Dee. This is Analytical. Hello! Hello, hello! I'm Hannah. And I'm John. And we're your favorite literary nerds. Today we are going to be discussing Everyday Use by Alice Walker. And to start off, I want to bring in a little bit of the history of the Black Power Movement. In the story, we see some changes from Dee, who then changes her name. But a lot of this comes from the Black Power Movement. Yeah, I actually think we should start with the changes that D has, like, happened if, before we start talk about the movement that influenced these changes. First of all, a little bit about D. We see that she is a very strong woman. I would describe her as insanely strong and independent. Her mother makes a remark that really sits with me, talking about her friends she had when she was younger that Maggie doesn't remember, which I think is important also. I think that kind of shows a difference in perspective that Maggie and her mother, that I guess their mother, have on D as a person. But anyways, that's kind of off topic. The mother says about the friends that they were followers almost. The girls that she had hung on to her every word, and the boys that hung around the house, she says they hung around and pink shirts, which I think is kind of supposed to talk about their femininity. I think it really is saying that she was a strong woman and she kind of didn't attract so much but hung out with weaker men. And, well, I just think that was how it was put in the book. I'm not saying wearing pink makes you weaker, obviously, but I think that's how the book is supposed to, like, show. It's a symbol, guys. Not so serious. But she's a very strong woman and she just attracts these weaker people to hang out with because of her strength. I think it's interesting that you say the mother sees her as a strong woman because she kind of forgets that she's a woman now. She says something about how she has a nicer hair and a fuller figure than her other daughter, Maggie. And Maggie had a terrible accident as a child where she was in a burning house, which we can also talk about a little bit more later on. But it seemed like Dee never wanted to be in the life that they were in. That the mother had this farmhouse and when it burnt down, she said, why don't you do a dance around the ashes? Or she wanted to ask her that. Because Dee just seems so happy to be out of that place. And she also said, I'll come visit you wherever you live or wherever you choose to live. And that kind of seemed to rub the mom the wrong way as well. I thought that was a very stressed word as well. I think the author put it in quotes, right? The wherever you choose to live. I thought that was kind of interesting. I knew it was important because it read as important, but I didn't really consider why. And I think most of the story actually is like that. It's a very unassuming story. So thinking back like the chrysanthemums, this story reminds me a lot of John Steinbeck's The Chrysanthemums, kind of working with that iceberg theory of um, the other author, I guess we're getting way too many authors in this. But <laughs> it's just a very unassuming story. Like you read it and you're just like, it's just a little house visit. I mean, there's a little bit of drama with the quilts, but that's it. Like that's the extent. But you read it and you just, you want to reflect on it when you're done. You read it and a great change has happened and you don't even know it. But I think you kind of do know it because she talks about before how Dee had style before she even knew what style was. And it seemed like almost Dee kind of dressed a little bit more like how the white women in town would dress. Like she would make suits out of old suits and she would really copy what I think would have been a very stereotypical white woman's outfits, if that makes sense. Or what would have passed as like white clothing maybe. It's not in character for Dee to act like that, I guess, when she's older. But we don't really get a lot of younger Dee. But that doesn't really keep in mind with what I think of younger Dee. I don't know if younger Dee would want to imitate people she saw. Maybe, like, well-dressed women she saw. But I think she genuinely liked the style of those clothings. She saw the current style, and I guess it was popular because people liked it. But she saw those styles being used, and she said, no, that's just really stylish. So she kind of took after it. 
Yeah, I might actually take back it being about white women's clothing. It just seemed like she wanted to stand out. She wore bright clothing to her graduation, black pumps to match a green suit. She really just wanted to have style and stand out. She made sure that she was a leader in that. Exactly. I think that really does go back to her strength and her independence as a human. I, I mean, I think I really should stress that woman part because this is a woman's story. All the characters we get are female besides Dee's husband. And I think that's important. It was a very deliberate choice to make the mother have two daughters. Yes, it definitely is. And also the juxtaposition of the daughters with one being a very like homely child where she did have a terrible accident. She doesn't walk very well. She doesn't think very well. She's almost blind, probably because of that fire where it probably did maybe burn her retinas a little bit where she just can't see. She can't really read for herself. And even the mother herself has a very, she says, a manly, a manly demeanor. She works with her hands where she is constantly working on the farm to provide for her family. And it does seem like maybe their father passed away. Or is not in the picture anymore, but it does seem like the mother had to pull up and do it herself. And there's a remark the mother makes, I think is what you're referencing, where she says that woman's work isn't really meant for her. She doesn't feel as comfortable doing woman's work. She says that, like, somewhere in the story. Not in that direct words. I'm paraphrasing here. I don't remember the exact quote. But she says that, and I think that is a very interesting connection you've made there. And another interesting connection you made was between Maggie and the fire. I read the passage where they introduced Maggie, and I saw her scars, and I read the passage about the fire, and I did not put them together, because I'm an idiot, apparently. But I just, I read the burn scars, and I read the fire, and I just kind of said, oh, like, I wonder how she got those. So I just, I guess I'm not as quick on the uptake there. I might have to call you an idiot. That's a really (laughs) stupid thing not to notice. I just, I just didn't. I think it's definitely interesting to notice that though. And the mother does say, I can kill and clean a hog as mercilessly as a man. That's a line that actually when I looked up the story, that's what they had highlighted. And I think it is a very interesting comparison to make to the chrysanthemums where that woman was also very manly. So going back to connecting this to the Black Power movement, these changes from D, back to talk about those specifically, I guess we kind of got off topic there as we often do. These changes from D, D changes her name, which kind of upsets the mother, but she also kind of takes it better than I thought she would. Like at the same time, her mother, I guess for me, it looks like she just doesn't understand it. Like she isn't actually upset. She kind of like gets a little like um, standoffish. She's like, oh, what was wrong with your other name? And she's like, well, that was the name of... um, we got the it people from, who oppressed yeah, me. Yeah, oppressed us. I couldn't think of the exact wordage. So Dee changes her name to Wangero Liwanika Kamanjo. And it's very interesting that it does sound like such a traditional African name, with also her husband being named Asala Malikim, which also could be seen as almost a traditionally Islam name as well. Well, and with that, he uh, says pork is dirty and... Would not eat the collard greens. Yeah, would greens. not eat the collard greens. I couldn't think collard. of it. Collard. Collard, sorry. Collard. Greens. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is another interesting comparison to make. And so we do see Dee go through these kind of drastic changes of changing her name, changing her style. It does say how she wore her hair was different, that it was braided around her crown and sticking straight up, and that the man had very long hair, a very long beard, and her clothes were touching the floor even in summer, and she had very long hoop or gold earrings. And all of these changes can be attributed to the Black Power movement. We are specifically talking about the Black Power movement in the 1960s and 70s. This was a political and a social movement where they wanted racial pride, self-sufficiency, and equality for all people of Black and African descent. We are getting this information from the Digital Public Library of America, which we will have links down below. It originally is credited to in 1966 to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. They did start off as a very nonviolent, peaceful protest with the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power movements, but there were groups that branched off that wanted a little bit more drastic measures. Some people always say, like, the Black Panther Party was very... A violent protest, but they weren't always, and they, I think a lot of times in the media, they were 
characterized as being violent. Yes, obviously they were they were obviously villainized in the uh, media, and honestly, I don't see anything wrong with violent protests, especially when injustice is being done. I guess this is very radical of me, but honestly, like overthrow the government if it's being bad to you. Like, are you kidding me? That's kind of how America started was from violent protests. Exactly. And I think it is kind of hypocritical when people get upset with violent protest whenever there are changes not happening from peaceful protest. But that is how America started. Exactly. I'm in the same boat. America started from very violent protest. Like, <laughs> So another movement that branched off from the Black Power movement was the Nation of Islam, which I think we can see with her husband. Yeah, I'm, I will continue using her husband as the name because I cannot pronounce it. He also has to shorten it, which I think is an interesting thing because you see that a lot with people of color where they say, no, just call me this to like whiten it for people. I just don't want to butcher his name every time I try to say exactly. it. Exactly. That's what I'm most worried about. Like, I just, I just feel bad if I mess up someone's name. Salam Malikim. And I think, you know, if I heard it over and over, I could say it. I just really do not want to butcher it every time I try. It is also interesting when Dee tells her mother she changed her name and she said, what happened to Dee? And Dee says, she's dead. That's very a very interesting thing to say. Well, I think it's also kind of a double-edged statement because D is dead. Like if you think about D's like who like she even like brings us up like who was D named after? Like Aunt D and Grandma D, like there's been many D's, but they are dead. And I think that's a, a kind of distinction that this D, I guess, what's her actual name? Wangero? Wangero. Wangero was saying was that the person she was named after is dead could also be like an interpretation of that statement, but also like that a part of me is dead. And I think that she's kind of saying that like that part of me that was linked to those people in our ancestors is dead. That kind of like oppression history of them is like she's trying to kill that part. I can definitely see that. I also think a little bit about when trans individuals take on a new name and they refer to it as being dead named. So I was kind of hesitant to call Wangaro D because of that. But that's what we see her at the beginning of the story. And even the mother keeps referring it to her as Well, even the narration refers to her as D, which I think the mother is the narrator in the story. It is. She actually says, I, you get a lot of I's and you's. Specifically, the mother even says to us, you've no doubt seen those TV shows where the child who has made it is confronted, which is very interesting that we are being spoken to from the writer. It doesn't happen a lot in literature. And it might not be us directly, but there is a you they are talking to. Yeah, there definitely is an accounting here. Like, I guess not like the number accounting, but like this is an account of someone to another person. Almost like a letter, but not really. This is meant for an intended audience, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yes, I agree. And I also like that the mother is thinking about when Dee will come back. And she thinks about those TV shows where you see long-lost children find their parents, and they're always so happy. And she's not sure if that will come up here. And that's her apprehension to see that. Like, you can't curse out your family and insult each other on those TV shows, but will Dee do that to her? And I think, actually, that when Dee Sashwangero does show up, that her mother is very accepting, and so is Dee. Like, she's just very willing to put in an honest try. Is she? Because I kind of think Wangero is out for these everyday use objects. Yes and no. She is doing this for selfish reasons. She does want, like, these objects to use as centerpieces at her table and, like, to hang the quilts, which just, like, upsets her mother greatly. And, like, you're supposed to use them is kind of, like, the feeling that her and Maggie both have. The part that sticks out to me is the camera. When she gets out the camera and takes pictures of her mom in front of the house, I just think that she she wants these everyday objects for her own personal use. But also, like, it's important for her in her own mind, as a heritage thing. She wants those objects to celebrate her heritage, where she came from, her ancestors, her grandmother, her uncle, who whittled that butter churner. This is her way of honoring her ancestors. I think it is because we're seeing it from the mother's point of view that it seems a little iffy about what she's actually wanting. 
And even the mother says the whole time when Wangaro is taking pictures, she's always getting the house in the picture. And, I mean, you do see a lot of old pictures with the houses in the background. And the question, I guess, is why? Like, why did Dee want to have those pictures of the house when she wasn't necessarily, like, ever lived there? Because it didn't seem like the house was rebuilt while she was living there. Well, but she also did say that the um, the mother did say that the house was similar to the old house. And it was, like, in a field, the same, like, setup of three-bed, one-bath. I don't know if that's right at all. Um, but it was the same, like, sort of house and the same, like, location almost. So I think the houses were very similar. So even if she didn't live in it per se, she lived in the other one and it kind of, like, had a lot of memories. There's also the idea there then that she hated the other house. She obviously hated it. Her mother remarks the remark upon, like, go dance around the ashes. Like, she detested it. And she now likes this one. And that also happens with the quilts, where her mother offered her one of the quilts before she went to college. And she declined and said it was dirty and old. I think that goes into the changes. I think it does too. So I really do think that Wangaro wanting these objects and the quilts and, like, the pictures is her trying to honor her heritage. I don't know if it's necessarily in a good way. And her mother obviously doesn't think so because it's displayed in a negative light in this first-person narration. Which kind of makes an interesting point if Alice Walker thought that what they were doing was okay or not. Like, if she agreed with the Black Power Movement as much. She maybe agreed with it for the equality aspect, but maybe she didn't like that they were trying to just put their culture on display instead of actually participating in it. Where maybe Wangaro is accepting this new culture, but she seems to want to hold on to the old when she didn't really want it before. Exactly, yeah. And I think it definitely bothers her mother to see that, which I think could be seen as Alice Walker's own thoughts on the subject, but also could be completely wrong. Like, we, I don't, I didn't know Alice Walker personally. No, and I don't, I didn't really see a lot with that of Alice Walker's thoughts on it as either. And I'm sure if we did more of her works, we would see a little bit more of that theme or maybe countering that theme. Maybe she was writing from a point of view of her own mother who did disapprove of this kind of thing. So now we're going to jump into some symbols because we love symbols here. I think it's very interesting of what she wants, the objects that Wangaro is choosing. What about them specifically? So the churn top, she goes, the churn top is what I need. She's been looking at this butter churn and that's what she wants with the milk clabber in it, which seems to be used. It seems like the mother still uses it. And I think it's very interesting that she's just trying to make it as a centerpiece and she's trying to do something artistic with it, that she's going to hang quilts just to be pretty and kind of almost put her black culture on display, which I think she does have every right to do. As a black woman, I can just see the mother's point of view, too, where she thinks these items need to be used. I I agree. I think that's where the main, like, issue or, I guess, like, plot in the story comes from is the everyday use, the title, of the objects and of the meaning behind them. So, like, is it okay to just display a butter churn top? I have an interesting thought as well. Yes. I feel like maybe with a lot of the, you know, black history museums coming out, maybe there are some people who wish those objects were still in their own family and not that their history was wiped out and now they're just in museums. I'm not sure if that's true for anyone, but I just think like maybe that is kind of where this comes through as well, where these objects could be used still by someone in that family, but now they're just in history museums. There's a whole question there about the morals of museums that we won't probably get into. That's (laughs) true. That is an interesting question, but I don't know if it really translates to this. It does in a way, like, I think that Wangaro does want to kind of make a museum out of these pieces, but it also means something personal to her, like, in a way. Like, it's her family. It was objects in her family. Like, obviously, she probably remembers those quilts. She probably remembers the people that made the quilts. I mean, she definitely remembers people that made the quilts. She remembers the people that whittled the uh, butter turned top, but I also think it's interesting to note that she doesn't really remember them. Maggie comes out and, like, starts spitting out the names of the people, like, uh, it was Henry? I can't think of the uncle that whittled it. 
His name was Henry, but they called him Stash. Exactly. And that's just a very intimate fact. I was right, I just want to say. But (laughs) it's a very intimate fact that Maggie is able to just reciprocate, or I guess spit out, that Wangara wasn't even beginning to know. She just sees it and is like, oh, that would look pretty on my table. But Maggie actually knows it, and she probably uses it still, like you said. And not even that. Maggie learned a quilt with her Aunt Dee and her Grandma Dee. Like, those were the people who helped her quilt, and so she has that piece of memory with them. While it does seem a little bit more performative for Wangara, where she'll be like, oh, look at this, and this piece is from my grandfather who fought in the Civil War. It's kind of a very interesting duality, because on the one hand, I do understand her wanting some of that aspect of her culture and her heritage, and just wanting that remembrance. But on the other hand, we also have Maggie who would use them. And so it's like, should these objects even be used? It could be destroyed. It could end up like rags. And then you will lose that piece of them. And I think that's another interesting question is the losing of it. Because obviously Maggie is ready to give up the quilts. She doesn't really need it to remember them. I don't think so. I think Maggie's just doing it because Dee scares her. Because Maggie the whole time is nervous. She's not like looking anyone in the eye. And it seemed like she was fine with her mother before. Before she says she's willing to give up the quilt, she does like have a change of like her demeanor. In the passage, it kind of says that she does something that she hasn't usually done. Not really. Just sees they like feet scraping over each other. And then she just has some snuff in her mouth. It doesn't look like she had a big change to make her want them. She looked at her sister with something like fear, but she wasn't mad at her. This was Maggie's portion. This was the way she knew God to work. Like, Maggie is used to getting the lesser hand. She's used to Dee getting everything. And so Maggie is ready to just let Dee have it, which I think is a very sad thing. And it's a very sad aspect of Maggie's life where she is just expecting her sister to get it all. And I don't think the mother has done that. I think the world has done that. I guess I misinterpreted that part. I saw something that wasn't there. Uh, You're right. I guess I didn't notice that. I want to agree that it's always been Dee getting her own way all the time, but I think it kind of becomes from the differences of them. Like, Dee got her own way most of the time in the past, I think because of her strength sometimes. Whereas Maggie is a weaker person, I think, is what we're supposed to get from the story. Kind of a meeker person as well. A lot more anxious and apprehensive as we see throughout the story. And I think that kind of is supposed to translate into, it definitely translates into this part where the mother has to come in and say, like, no, Maggie gets these. I think I'm going to disagree with you still. I think since Dee is depicted as being a very beautiful woman and still a very strong woman, confidence can get you a long way. And also being beautiful on top of that, like people were more willing to do things for you. There's some studies to back that up. I don't know if we need to quote them, but I mean, in general, like you can kind of get away with a bit more things. I think maybe with Dee having people who doted on her in the past where people followed her around, she's kind of used to getting her way. I guess I just don't pick up on that because from reading this passage, it kind of seems like the mother doesn't think all that highly of Dee in the past or Wangaro now, especially. She kind of is very rude to her in person, especially about the name stuff and kind of like just kind of questions her pretty harshly about some other things, especially the quilts, like I guess. But I mean, it's fair to say that Wangaro started it, but it's also fair to say the mother was really rude about it. I don't know how nice this mother has been to her daughters in the past. That's what I'm saying. I just think that that's kind of the bias we're getting. Because in the short story, the mother even says, I did something I've never done before. I hugged Maggie to me. And so that just seems to be kind of like that the mother raised them, but she was not a like very doting mother. Well, it's also unfair to say that exactly. Like just come out and say that because we don't know like without the father figure in her life, the mother was obviously very busy, had to do all the work of the man and the woman in the house. Like especially like historically, I should say. I don't mean like traditional roles aren't like important but they were for the story i mean to say yes and i don't don't mean to say that the mother was a mean mother or anything and she does obviously love her daughters it's just 
that line kind of stuck out to me too that she had never hugged her daughter it, it definitely before. definitely stuck out to me as well yes it is an important line, and I think there is something telling there, but I also think there was a lot going on with the mother as well. It's just kind of a situation where it all sucks. There's also a very interesting line as we move down to the end, where Wangaro says, you just don't understand your heritage, which is very interesting. Like, do they understand their heritage, or is it Wangaro who understands it more? And I think you kind of form your own heritage in a way. So, like, to Wangaro, her heritage is what she's trying to make it, and she's trying to kind of splinter off from her heritage in a way and that's i think that's kind of what upset the mothers because Wangaro comes back and is lecturing her about heritage when she changed her name a historic name that was passed down through the family was it the name given to her by oppressors or like an ancestor from oppressors yes it was it definitely was without a doubt it was but it also was a name that their family kind of took for their own i think that is what her mother was thinking is like it wasn't an oppressor's name to her mother but it was to Wangaro. And I think that's kind of the theme of the story, the true, like, the one big theme, I guess. There's many themes, obviously. But the one big theme is kind of, like, heritage. And I think that heritage is something very different to Wangaro and her mother. I can agree with that, yes. It is a very interesting thing to see where Wangaro doesn't believe they're honoring their heritage correctly. Whenever the mother has had these items, she's had them set away to get passed down to her daughter that... They have aspects of her family woven into the absolute actual fabric of it. And yet she wants to use them while Wangara just wants to put them on display. And that's where they differ in, is it actually your heritage or not? And I think it's interesting to note that Wangaro's kind of remaking herself as a person. She's changed her name. She's changed, like, all the way she dresses all the time. So what is heritage? Is heritage passed down through your family? Is it honoring your past? Is it... That's definitely another theme of this story is, like, what is heritage just in general and then the implications of heritage on each person. Yes, because it does seem like the mother is living her – the life they have lived before. Exactly. That, that they have been farmers thought, the whole is, time. Is exactly. Like, her mother's living a very traditional life. I mean, that's that's how that's how she's always lived. I, I'm pretty sure like, that's what I'm getting from this story. It just seems normal to her to act this way and she kind of – it's very – rhythmic throughout the story of the way she's doing it. I mean, it starts off with, like, they they had the yard, and they fixed it, and they kind of cleaned up, and this is just what they do. And at the end, it kind of goes back to that when Wangaro leaves, they hung out in the yard for a while, and they went to bed when it was time. They have a very rhythmic way of doing it, and I just kind of get that Wangaro wasn't about that rhythm. Yes, I do. I, it's a very interesting point to make, and I think that is a good overarching theme for the story, and that... I mean, if we want to tie into the title to it, because sometimes you can do that. And that objects that are everyday use to the mother just want to be displayed by Wangaro. And so it's a very interesting battle there. So if we want to end on a little bit more hopeful of a note, I think Maggie goes through a little bit of a change at the end as well. So Maggie smiled, maybe at the sunglasses, but a real smile, not scared. Like the mother finally standing up for Maggie against Dee, like really, like made her happy. She was happy to have that aspect of her heritage, to have those quilts for herself. And I think, this is a personal opinion, but I think the quilts meant a lot more to Maggie than they did to Wangaro. I think that Maggie kind of saw the quilts as a memory, and Wangaro saw them as an object. I agree. I can see that as well. Where, you know, Maggie had worked with her grandmother and her aunt to make those quilts. Or to learn how to quilt. Maybe not those quilts necessarily. And I think that also kind of goes back to your museum point. I I said I didn't want to talk about them, like the morals of museums, but now I kind of (laughs) do. It's because Wangaro's kind of acting as a museum in this um, sort of, in this short story. She's coming into this strange, unfamiliar place to her, at least, and she's stealing these objects, or she wants to steal these objects and put them on display. She doesn't want to use them. She wants to put them on display. There are a lot of objects in museums that are taken very awfully. I, oh, like 100%. Well, okay. Like 80% of objects in museums were More stolen. More probably. But yeah. yes. No, they were stolen from those cultures. They went over there and just stole them. 
kind of like how their heritage was stolen. Yes. Holy crap. Okay. Ready for this connection? Just with the slaves and everything and getting their absolute, like, lives stolen and brought to this place where they weren't even wanted and they were treated like garbage for however long still to this day. Well, they were wanted, but for nefarious reasons. There's awful reasons. They were not wanted as people, not no, wanted no, no, for their actual no, no. culture and heritage. They were wanted for the work they could do. Yes. And so I think that's very interesting that she says you don't know your heritage or you don't understand your heritage when she was trying to take the items, kind of acting as an oppressor. And I don't mean to make Wangaro sound like a villain because I don't think she's doing it out of malice. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I I should clarify that as well. I also don't believe that Wangaro is the villain in this. I don't think there is a villain in this. I think this is just a situation, a misunderstanding of a situation that just kind of exists sometimes in nature and in life. No, I don't mean to like make her sound evil or malice or malicious in any way. I think she is doing it out of a misguided sense of remembrance. But that sense isn't misguided to her. I no, guess, it's is not. What it's I'm misguided saying. to our point of view, from the mother's point of view. From the mother's point of view, which we get through the story, it's misguided. If we read it from Longaro's point of view, it might be a completely different story. Oh, I'm very sure it would be. I think that'd be interesting, as well, actually. I'm sure you, you could write it as your like paper for a report. It would 100% teachers would love it. Well, I think that I have made all my points I want to make. I believe I have too. I'm sure we could talk this story to death. It's a very good story. I would recommend this one almost over any other one we've read. We've read a lot of good ones, but this one is amazing. It just, the writing is beautiful. I guess we didn't really talk about that much. I guess we could get into that, but I don't really want to currently. The writing is beautiful. Alice Walker was a poet as well. And so I think we've had some very interesting, really beautiful language in this in this month. Yes. Well, listeners, we hope you'll reach out to us. We would really love to hear your thoughts on this story as it is such an amazing story. And any story. (laughs) All of them, in fact. Thanks for listening. And join us next time as we discuss The Paper Menagerie by Ken Liu. Analytical is created, hosted, and produced by Hannah and John Newland. It is edited by John Newland. The artwork was created by Hannah Newland using Logo Maker and is owned by Hannah and John Newland. The theme music you're jamming to now is created by John Bartman, and you can check out more of his work at his website, johnbartman.com. Web design is by Hannah Newland, and you can find us at analyticalpod.wixsite.com slash analytical. And you can find that link in the description. All our social pages are at analyticalpod, and you can email us at analyticalpod at gmail.com to reach out and discuss your thoughts on this episode, to chat about literature, or life. Please rate and review us, and subscribe to our podcast, and tell your friends. It will help other people find and enjoy as well. 